Well, hi, welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. This is your host, Dan Meller, and I'm going to be covering some very interesting questions today. As always, you, the listeners, uh, submit these uh, really cool questions in that we can cover on here in ways that hopefully answer not only your particular question, but uh, provide the information for a lot of other listeners who probably have common questions. You know, that's the cool thing about success principles. They're not unique to just one application. They're very transferable. So when you know something that works in real estate, you can take that with you if you start a lawn mowing business. You know, if you do something really well there, most of the same kind of principles are going to carry with you if you start an investment company. It's just the way it works. Success is very transferable. Got a new product in that I'm really excited about. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it yet, but I was privileged to be one of 50 authors selected by Nightingale Conant, the company out of Chicago that has been producing top quality training material for years. The first product was one that impacted me greatly, The Strangest Secret, the little audio recording by Earl Nightingale that was done years and years ago, where it says essentially, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. But, you know, Earl says, what you think about is what you become. You can change where you are by changing what you think about. Just that principle that we've seen recycled in many ways. But anyway, the company went on to record what I always considered the masters of achievement. Uh, people like Kind of like people like Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley and Earl, Earl Nightingale, Napoleon Hill and um, Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Shuler and on and on and on. Well, anyway, there are 50 people that were selected and I was privileged to be in that group and they now have an audio CD product out celebrating 50 years of changing lives. So I've got these CDs here. Now it's a single CD because each of us only did about four or five minutes. But it's a great compilation that I'm uh, honored to be a part of. And they aren't allowing us to sell it. It will not be available on the website. We have to be creative in ways to give it away. So we're going to do that. You'll see that coming up on our website and in some of the promotions once I figure out what I am going to do with it. But I'm um, excited about having that particular little product ready to hand on to people to encourage you in the same way that I've been encouraged. And I hope that's what this podcast does, where it's probably not brand new, nothing you ever thought about, ever heard about before, but it's just repetition to confirm what are the principles that can really help you get closer and closer to the success goals that you have. Now, let me move on. This week I had a blog that I put up and I I titled it, Just Give Me Some Cash, Dude. And I I talked in there briefly about a recent um, visit to Taco Bell. I popped in to get some lunch and the young guy behind the counter, probably 17 or 18 years old, I would suspect, commented on the, I had just done a cash transaction and had more cash in my pocket than I normally do. So it was kind of a wad of cash. And he commented on that. And I said, well, what would you do if I loaned you $1,000? And he said, oh, man, I'd quit this job and just go home, hang around the house, you know, until the money was gone. And I said, well, what kind of a plan is that? Then you'd not have a job and you would owe me $1,000. You'd be deeper in the hole than you've ever been. And, well, he just seemed to really relish the idea of just hanging around a house for a few days having some money to spend without having to work. Well, unfortunately, that's a pretty uh, pretty common mentality that gets people deeper and deeper in the ditch rather than getting them on their way to success. Now, I know that's not the way you think, but 
On that little blog, I've had now, let's see, 178 comments on that. And frankly, I'm a little concerned about the trend that I see. Now, most people said, and when I said, what would you do if I gave you $1,000? I did not clarify if that were, were to be a loan or if that was just going to be a gift. A lot of people quickly said, well, if it's a loan, I don't want to take it because it just gives me more in debt. But those who considered it a gift, for the most part, just simply said I'd reduce debt. You know, I'd fix a transmission in my car, whatever. And I really was a little taken back. The number of people who responded with anything where they would take that as a seed amount and grow it into something more, I could count on one hand out of those 178. And it really made me think about that. Now, I'm going to ponder on that, but, but um, I'm concerned about that. Now, I recognize the value of getting out of debt and just taking care of the basic needs, and a lot of people right now feel like their back is kind of against the wall. But unless you, at some point, have a little bit of seed that you really believe you can grow into more, you're never going to do anything but just simply tread water trying to stay three days ahead of creditors. Now, I say this, again, coming out of some experience in walking through those times where I didn't have enough money to pay the light bills. and I, But even during those times, I would still figure out, hey, if I go to a repossession auction, I can buy a car for 200 bucks, clean it up, put it in the front yard, sell it for 500 bucks, and then I got 500 to go back and do the same thing. I've always thought like that. And if you don't get out of the mentality of just taking all the resources that you have just to meet your immediate needs, you're never going to have anything more than just enough to meet your immediate needs, and probably not even that. Now, I'm not, I don't want to be preaching about this, but it just it really struck me because I thought I'd have people in there who would say, oh my gosh, I'd take the $1,000 and I'd and my son and I would get a little shaved ice kiosk and put it down on a corner, and this summer we could make 10000 bucks, Or have people say, uh, wow, I've got this little uh, plot of land that I'm not really using, but I could buy some popcorn, plant it, harvest it, sell it, and turn it into s- some money. I mean, just simple things like that. But there wasn't much of that. And, and I hope you're not in the group that would just simply that just simply sees every resource you have as just helping you eke out a living, helping you survive. Now, even though times are tough, I mean, you don't wait until things are really great until you can make those steps forward. You do that while things are tough. Uh, when things are tough, can be a motivator to be more creative about the things that you can do. Well, that being said, I actually have toyed with the idea of uh, funding a couple people just to see what they really could do. I mean, we hear about ideas like that all the time. I mean, Grameen Bank, that was started by Muhammad Yunus. I mean, he, he wrote Banker to the Poor. And if you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend it. But he, he talked about loaning money to the women on the streets in Bangladesh who were held captive by the suppliers for the materials that they would use to make the little baskets and things that they would do, jewelry. But those people were extorting uh, high fees from them. And he said, you know, what if we loan those ladies money where they could buy their own materials? Would it help them change this cycle of poverty? And in fact, that has been proven to be true time and time again. He would make loans, I mean, sometimes for three dollars. I mean, they were very, very small loans, but allowing somebody to then purchase their own materials and break that cycle of being a debtor, being held captive by somebody else. 
I hope you look at it in the same way. You know, just visualize that. I mean, imagine, just let yourself dream. What would you do? Not, on, not if you won the lottery or got an inheritance, but what if you got a little nest egg together? If it's $500 or $1,000, what could you do with that? Now, don't think that you can't do something significant with that or even less. Now, one of the things that we've been having a lot of fun with is the link on 48days.net. If you look for the yellow post-it note, you'll see that I've got there a free download of 48 very low-cost business ideas. Now, these are real things that you can do. Most of them are things that I have done, taken a very small amount of money. Now, I made sure that they were all under $2,500, and most of them didn't cost anything. But they're real ideas. But look at what you could do if you had a little nest egg. You know, what is it that you're going to do this year not to just survive and be in the same place starting 2011 as you are now? What is it you're going to do to change your level of success, to break the cycle that you're in of just going paycheck to paycheck? What is it you're going to do that's going to be different than what you did last year, last week, last month? Make sure you have a plan for what that's going to be. Well, let me go to the questions. Wendy says, Dan, I love to do graphic design. I have an associate's degree in digital media, now a bachelor's degree in advanced technology. Golly, advanced technological education. Such a big degree, I can't even say it. I love to design invitations, PowerPoints, flyers, and such for friends and family. I have some clients that call me because of word of mouth about invitations, and I only charge $25 to $45 for the design, and they pay the cost of printing the materials. I just get it done. Some say I should be charging much more, but it takes me no time to get it done. Should I raise prices or continue as it is until I get a substantial customer base? Well, the answer is yes and yes. Now, doing something, you know, designing an invitation, a flyer, whatever, for $25, $45 really isn't very much. Now, when you say it doesn't take you much time, I hope it doesn't take you more than 30 minutes to do it if that's what you're charging. Because those skills do translate into being compensated well. And if this is something where, you know, you're taking two or three hours to do it, then certainly I think you're charging too little for that. To break out of this pattern where you just have these little things that you do and then you kind of after the fact ask for a little money, I would encourage you to structure two or three different options that you have where you clearly show for $175, you know, I'll design a flyer, a, three, a three-fold over flyer, whatever it happens to be, you know, you'll design it, lay it out, make it look nice, have good copy that comes to life. It can be something pretty simple, and for you, you may see it as simple. But keep in mind, most of the things that we see as very simple are things that still have value. We tend to undervalue the things that we do easily. So the lady who does my accounting I mean, she could do it in her sleep. It's no big deal. To me, it's a royal pain in the neck to do what she does. And so I pay her very well. Again, it comes easy for her, but that's a skill that she has refined, and she's structured that into something that provides great income for her. So, yeah, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Now, if you want to build this into a business, sure. You know, raise your prices, structure it clearly what it is you have. I mean, Pay attention to the law of supply and demand. If you raise your prices and then you don't have anybody asking you anymore, you just put yourself out of business. But if you're getting way more requests than you can handle, certainly that gives reason to structure it and increase your prices. 
Gary says, Dan, I retired from General Motors where I picked, packed, and shipped parts. I never cared for the management style there. It seems as though I never quite fit in and was always a dead-end job, but it did pay well. 30 years, though, was more than enough. My wife and I did a counseling ministry process under certification. We don't have degrees for about 10 years. Although we liked working with people, the process was quite extensive and the grace was waning. We recently stopped attending the network, the uh, apparently the ministry network they were under. Uh, grace for that has waned as well. We both have some health issues but can hide it if our work isn't physical. We're willing to get jobs but don't know if we have the skills needed. Would you suggest your job search software for us? I'm 55 years old and live in Indiana. All right, the job search software we have is on our site, 48days.com. You can go there, click on it. It's an automated process combined with two hours of real coaching to take you through a very traditional process of getting your resume ready, doing a job search, targeting companies, interviewing, negotiating salary, boom, boom, boom. No, I would not recommend that for you. Now, that's priced very inexpensively, but I, I question whether that's a, a right focus for you and your wife. If you already have 30 years in with General Motors and you and your wife were involved in the counseling ministry, you've got the skills to do that. I would look at, does that position you to have things that aren't taxing physically, position you as coaches in a particular area? You could be marriage coaches or parenting coaches, you know, something to that effect, if that's an area that you function well in. And if you just kind of do that subtle repositioning where instead of counseling with the chronic, tragic kind of things that are going on, position yourself as coaches, you may be surprised by the kind of positive, upbeat, healthy clients you attract. It's a lot of fun. It's easier to charge for coaching in that arena. But I would encourage you to do something like that to shape what you've already done than to just think that at 55 years old, you've got to put a resume together and go out here and get a job. I'm, I'm afraid you're going to end up you know, with a job much like what you described that you left after 30 years because you don't describe real clear skills what position you in corporate America for a position other than that. But can you take that counseling coaching background and shape it? Yes. Do that. Go to 48days.net and just click on coaches. I've got a lot of information there about coaching, you know, what, where it's going these days and how you can position yourself in that arena if you, in fact, do agree that that's a fit for you. This comes from John. He says, I've been working in a light industrial environment for the past three years. Not my favorite, but it's a job. And in my state, there are not many of these. My company has posted a job in another location that will involve computer skills, and they mostly hire internally. Based on what I heard yesterday, there does not seem to be many applicants for the position, so this will increase my chances of getting it. Since I have a bit of experience in education, I'm thinking if I submitted my full two-page resume, it would not be a good idea. So I'm going to tailor my resume for the position and highlight the skills the job will require. Is this a good idea? Company is posted a job. Okay, I got to review the because you're talking about a, a position in the company that you're currently working for. All right, I'm going to tell you right now, your resume is going to play a very small part in this process. Don't spend a lot of time reshaping your resume. If you've got a nice two-page resume, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, if it's 15. It's overkill. You want to bring it down. But there's really no rationale in this situation for having to bring it down more from two pages to one, as an example. Just use it as it is. But the thing that's going to get you in as a candidate for this is 
are all the other things that you do outside of just submitting a resume. Find out who's in that department. Find out who has worked in that department already. Find out who's going to make the hiring decision. I mean, start a relentless process of contact with them every couple days, if not more, so that you create what we call in marketing top-of-mind positioning, so that you really are a viable candidate they're looking for. That'll do a whole lot more for you than trying to rework the fine sentencing on your resume. Kevin says, Dan, I had an ethical question that I'd like your opinion on. Now, this is pretty interesting. I like this question. I like the heart of the, uh, uh, Kevin, your heart, um, but um, I think we can get through this here and, and shed some light on this. Dan, I had an ethical question I would like your opinion on. I had an idea for a new business. In doing some initial internet research, I came across a franchise opportunity that was very similar to my idea. I inquired about the franchise and exchanged the very basic information with the business. While I think it is a good business, I don't have enough cash on hand for the franchise fee and do not want to acquire debt to start the business. Thank you, Dave Ramsey. However, I now feel conflicted about starting a business so similar to the franchise opportunity, both from an ethical perspective and certainly from a legal perspective. I'm not asking for a legal opinion from you, but would be interested in your thoughts on the ethics side of this dilemma. Okay, let's just, let's just take an example here. So we have McDonald's that came along as the first really well-done franchise for hamburgers. What did uh, Mr. Burger King or Mr. Wendy think when they came along and saw that? Obviously, that didn't stop them. They have concepts that are very, very similar. They had to scratch to come up with what's their unique selling proposition. How are they going to be different? I mean, and then Chick-fil-A with what they've done there. I mean, that's a very similar concept. Are they stepping on the toes of McDonald's because it's so similar? Not at all. I mean, that's very legitimate to do in business. You can start an idea that is very similar to the one you discovered that's already in place. This is not a, a, a legal question, certainly, and it really is not an ethical one. I mean, if you decide that you're going to start a window washing business and you discover there are already 10 window washers in your town... That's not an ethical issue to try to do it better. That's good business. Try to do it better. You can get rich doing something 10% better than what it's being done. So, no, go ahead and do this. I mean, I started a business one time providing auto accessories. There was a very well-known franchise at the time. I talked to them. They would have been thrilled to have me pay their franchise fee and monthly royalties, and I looked at the business. I did a little market research in the town and realized they had very little name recognition there, which is the primary purpose of a franchise, the recognition of an established model. So if it's Subway or Wendy's or Burger King or McDonald's or whatever it happens to be, the name carries a lot of weightness in a franchise. In this case, the name did not. It did not have a lot of recognition with the new car dealers who are going to be my contacts. So I simply started the business, learning as much as I could about the franchise and other similar business opportunities, but then shaped the business totally on my own without having any kind of connection to a franchise or business opportunity. Uh, That business was extremely successful very quickly, much more quickly than my projections had indicated. Um, Then I went on to sell that to some of the employees a few years later and moved on to other things. No, you can do that. Uh, again, I appreciate your heart on this, but nah, go ahead and do it. That's just uh, that's good business to do that. 
Okay, this here comes. This comes from Daniel, who says, "I've struggled off and on for years with meaning in my job." I was listening to the show on May 15th and identified with a question from the salesman as an I make a good salary and have a wife and three kids to support. I was shattered when you said it sounds like he didn't want to do the work or the hard work. It's not that for me, and I'm not sure if it was for that salesman either. It's a lack of caring for the job or a lack of meaning. The situation is often at an apathetic point. Now, I'm, I'm going to summarize this. I, I remember that question. The guy said he was a salesman. And he said he had been doing okay with that, but he was really tired of selling. And he just wanted to get a job where, you know, he didn't have to sell and just someplace where they would guarantee him a paycheck. Blah, blah. That was the question. And my response was, you better recognize you're selling. I don't care if you're administrative assistant or receptionist or if you're shipping parts out of the back. You're selling every day. That was my point. And I said, people who say they don't want to sell oftentimes really don't want to have to produce results. They just want to be guaranteed for having shown up and put in their time. Those days are over. We all are selling. And I maintain that point here. Now, again, for this particular listener, shaped it a little bit differently because he's kind of burnt out on selling. Well, find something you're passionate about. But recognize that even if you move out of a position that describes itself as selling, you still are selling. Every day you show I tell people, you got to really be up. you got to be energetic when you interview. And you've got to do a great job in interviewing. Then you get the job. Guess what you have to be the first day you show up in the job? The same thing. Energetic, full of enthusiasm. You're interviewing every single day. Because you're still being evaluated on, you, are you the right candidate, the best candidate for the position? If not, it's pretty easy to find somebody else who's probably going to want to compete with you for that opportunity. So we all are selling. We can't just walk away from that. We can't just say, well, I don't want to work that hard. I don't, have to, I don't want to have to be accountable for results that I produce. Guess what? You are. You're accountable for results that you produce. And this goes across the board. It doesn't matter what kind of a job you have. It doesn't matter if you are a freelancer or an independent contractor, contingency worker. It doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur, have a business of your own. You are going to be judged on the results that you produce. As soon as you accept that responsibility and opportunity, you're going to see that uh, you've got a whole a new level of opportunities that open up to you. So just uh, be cool with that. You know, you are selling. I mean, I, I happen to love to sell. I, I had a situation this week where I had a lady on the phone. I had followed up on a phone call, and and she had a proposal for me. And I asked her a couple hard questions. She says, well, I'm not a salesperson. I said, well, sell me. Sell me. You're talking about a lot of money here sell me on it. I said, I'm a salesman and I like to be sold too. But I said, you're asking for a lot of money. You're going to have to convince me why that has value. And she kind of resisted that. And I said, well, you can't just pass along information and expect people to write your company checks. Sell me. Well, anyway, let me go on. Jeremy says, hi, Dan. I've often entertained the idea of writing a book and feel that it would not only be fun, but a good source of additional income should it become successful. However, I'm just not sure where to start or if anyone would even be interested in about what I have to say. Do you get that a lot? I'm curious about what some of the topics are that your fans choose to write about. All right, Jeremy, let me give you a real quick course in writing. And we're doing a, a 
boy, this next week here, I mean, I'm speaking this, let's see, what is today? June the 10th, on the 17th and 18th, we're doing our first of two writers' conferences this year here at the sanctuary. I, I think we're maxed out at this point. But anyway, I love this conference because it's people who do want to write. Great writers don't choose a topic and write well about it. Great writers have a message that's exploding, that they they can't contain. Writers that are successful are not just good wordsmiths. I mean, I really don't care about grammar and syntax and punctuation. You can get editors to do that in a heartbeat. That's a small part. You better have a message that people want to hear. And the only way you have a message that people are going to want to hear is because you're so excited about it, you can't contain it within yourself. Now, I was just talking about selling. What is professional selling? True professional selling is simply sharing enthusiasm. That's what it is. It's not manipulating or conning people or tricking them or just making enough sales calls, throwing enough crap on the wall and something's going to stick. I mean, that, that doesn't work. That's not going to get you any level of success at all. True professional selling is sharing something that you are excited about. I mean, it comes down to if you go to a great restaurant, you tell 10 of your friends, you see a wonderful movie, you tell 20 people at work this week, that's selling. So the same thing is true in writing. You have a message, you're so excited about it, you can't contain it. You want to get it out there, not only in between the covers of a book, but you want to get it out there in 10 other ways as well. And that's exactly what you have to do. So if you entertain the, the idea of writing a book, if you're struggling for a topic that you would write about, I would encourage you to look at some other opportunity rather than this. That is not where people end up making money in writing. I mean, I wrote my first book because people were begging me for the content that I'd been presenting in Sunday school class and community seminars for 10 years. You know, and I kept saying, oh, I want to pass on to my son-in-law what you just talked about. What can I give him? I didn't have anything. People were begging me for the content. So the market was already there. The demand was there. And I simply put together some simple things that I really believed in. And that led to led on to a whole lot of other uh, really wonderful things. So do that. Now, in, in writing, in writing, there are, I mean, I've got a list that I'm going to go through in our Right to the Bank conference of 31 things that you can do to get your writing sold. I mean, keep in mind, writing a book is a very small part of the process of being a successful author. I I get tickled when I hear uh, Robert Kiyosaki talk about this. He says, you know, people talk about him being a a best-selling author, and he is. But he said, what is the key word in that phrase? Best-selling. He says nobody ever accused him of being a best-writing author, and he's not. But he's a best-selling author. He understands how to sell. And if you want to be an author and has a book that sells, that's what you've got to do. Now, I love the process of writing more than anything else that I do. But I don't write all the time because if I did, I'd starve, probably. I mean, I, I wish people would really have a realistic understanding of how little money most authors make. The money I make from my books at this point, and yes, my books have done quite well, but that is certainly not enough. For me to live on, unless you know, unless my needs are pretty simple, and I, frankly, I like to, um, I enjoy too many things. 
Well, I won't go into that in detail, but my income from my books directly is a small portion of my income because I do so many other things. I mean, I speak, I coach, we have live events here. You know, I work with other coaches. We have membership coaching sites. We have a lot of affiliate relationships through our websites that create income. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And you've got to understand, those are the things that you're going to have to do if you're going to have a book be successful. I mean, you can do seminars and workshops. You can consult. You can do ghostwriting or co-writing. You can do audio products, instructional manuals, uh, have distribution agreements so you sell the books of other people, which I do a lot. You can have work industry conventions and trade shows. You can republish works that are in the public domain. I mean, you can license your products. I mean, I, I've done a whole lot of things with mine that go way beyond just having books that go off the shelf at Barnes & Noble. Well, golly, I'd love to do more on the writing piece. I love writing. I'm excited about having a group here. And uh, if you're interested in writing, I'd be delighted to have your questions here or have you attend one of our Right to the Bank events. Well, Amanda from North Carolina says, Dan, I took out $150,000 to go to a top law school in your backyard in Nashville. Ooh, that narrows it down pretty quickly. And pursue what I thought would be a fulfilling career. The only job I got offered in the city in which I wanted to live was for a different area of law than what I wanted to practice. It was also not for great money, but I took the job anyway just to be employed. I paid off about 50000 on my loans, but I'm miserable in my job. I've looked into trying to change practice areas, but the type of law I want to practice has nothing to do with what I'm doing now, and nobody is hiring laterals without a book of business. After a lot of soul-searching, I want to do something with my interest in history. I have a bachelor's in history, preferably in a museum. My local state university offers a master's degree in museum studies, which I think I'm going to need to be considered for any such work. It wouldn't cost much to get the degree since I'd qualify for in-state tuition, but making minimal money for the two years it would take to get the master's plus the pay cut I know I'd take by working in a museum makes me scared that I'm never going to pay off my loans. I'm terrified of making another mistake in my career planning, but I'm also scared I'm going to have a nervous breakdown if I stay in my field current field much longer. Any advice? Oh my gosh, Amanda. Throw away your shovel so you stop digging a deeper hole. Oh, I, I, I mean, it just makes my blood go cold when I see somebody that has $150,000 in student loan debt. Now, bless you for working on that, and you've got 50 of that taken care of. I mean, the rule of thumb ought to be this. Never, never, never borrow more money for school than what you will reasonably expect to make in your first year out of school. All right, let's just categorize it like that. Now, so to you know, to borrow that much money, I mean, are there attorneys that make $150,000? Absolutely. But with what you're doing, I doubt that that's the case, especially since you described not being very fulfilled in doing that. Having $100,000 is not a small deal that you still own student loan debt. To now switch gears, go back to school, borrow more money to get a master's in museum studies? I don't think so. You're not going to hear my encouragement to do that. I mean, this may be some warm, fuzzy passion of yours, and I commend you on that. But no, I don't see any rationale for doing that until you get... The hundred thousand dollars paid off. Now I'm not just being. I'm not as much a stickler about 
you know, avoiding even uh, business debt or school debt is what my buddy Dave Ramsey is. And I'm not just saying, you know, don't have a life until you get that money paid back. But you need a big shovel to take care of that stinking debt you've got looking at you there. And if you go get a master's degree, unplug your income for two years, and then get a job paying $28,000, which is probably about where you're going to be, you're never going to get rid of You're right to be scared. You need to do something to leverage the degree you have now, your law degree, the JD you have behind your name. Just don't assume that what you're doing now is the only opportunity for you in law. You know, do something else. If you want to do research or go to work for BP Oil, you know, hand on depositions for them. I mean, look for something that would at least engage your degree so that you can make $100,000 a year, live on half of that, and kill that debt in two years. But until then, boy, I would be very uncomfortable just unplugging and going back to school and thinking that it's going to take you, you know, 20 years to get out of this. Now, if you have something in mind, I mean, if you create a light at the end of the tunnel, that's awesome. Please do that. Believe that there's light at the end of the tunnel in what you're describing. But create a plan where you can be looking at light in the tunnel two years down the road and not something that's going to take you 30 years to actually accomplish. Eric says, my passion is farming, which you know is typically a high capital, low return business. My wife and I recently built a home on some acreage, and I'm working toward developing a farming operation. In the course of this project, I've gotten trapped in a cycle of thinking that becoming a farmer would have been easier had I spent less on building the house. I often find myself thinking that the only way forward is to sell the house to free up capital for the farming operation. I'm not a fan of this sort of one-track thinking, but need help in breaking the thought cycle that leads me to that conclusion. What are some practical steps I can take to open my mind to the other options available to me? Now, I wish, Eric, I wish I knew more about, um, God, I don't even know what state you're in, but I wish I knew more about the farming that you're doing, if you've got a lot of acreage or what it is you're doing, if you're doing just cash crops or if you've got a dairy herd. But here's, here's how I would look at that. You describe this, like our previous uh, question here, as being a very long-term process. Uh, even though... Farming is typically a high capital, low return business. What could you do to change that typical scenario? Don't think that you have to just eke out a meager living and you're going to die in the same way. What could you do to change what most farmers do with you know their land and with their return? Now, here's some examples. Now, I haven't really thought this through, but I mean, I keep encountering people who are doing things differently. When I grew up, um, there were a lot of farmers who grew wheat and oats and hay. You fed up to cows and milked the cows. I mean, that was kind of the traditional farming operation. Then all of a sudden, a couple guys got wind of even rather than soybeans, which became so common, the price was driven down. What about canola? With all the concern about health and what we fry things in, canola became very popular. Now, it grows, it's, it's yellow, it looks like mustard, but you harvest it, it's got a little seed, and you get oil from that canola oil, which you find in the grocery stores. It's a higher-end product, more expensive, and some people made a lot of money converting to canola. I mean, I knew a gal one time who came back to her dad's farm down in Alabama where he grew cotton. Well, how unique is that? Not very Thousands and thousands of farmers in Alabama grow cotton. She did 
a small plot, as I recall, it was three or four acres, with organic cotton. Organic simply meaning that they did not use the traditional fertilizers and pesticides on it. She got over 20 times the price for her cotton than everybody else did because it had specific applications. Like, what if a lady's going to take makeup off her face? So she's going to dip it in whatever the little stuff is. I forget what it's called that my wife uses to take her makeup off. But anyway, with a cotton ball, what if you knew that in that cotton ball, instead of being soaked in pesticides, had never been exposed to anything like that? It was totally organic and pure. Would you pay more for it? Well, sure. You know, things like that. I knew a guy once who inherited his dad's farm, and he was going broke. We explored some operations, and he brought in a machine. It was a very large machine. And it reprocessed old tires, car tires. There was a process that took those to a very low temperature and put them through this machine. And they, at that point, would be brittle. And it would, they would just explode into millions of little pieces. Really cool process. But he did that, so he wasn't really using the farm in a traditional way, but he used the land that he had access to for a unique application, and thus he was doing something unique. I mean, I knew a couple one time that were poor farmers, just had a small amount of land. They started raising ginseng. Now, ginseng is kind of a root. It takes a couple years before you get a return on that. But again, they had a really strong, lucrative market for what they were doing because they repurposed the land rather than just doing the same thing every other farmer was doing. Well, great question. Golly, I, I love brainstorm with those kind of possibilities what you have to do is see things that other farmers don't see craig says dan i'm 35 years old i've worked in cubicles since i entered the workplace in my current position i have the perk of a window cube i can see trees the sun and the sky if i look behind me (laughs) i've lived in beautiful new england my entire life and i'm tired of seeing the seasons change without being able to fully enjoy them i need to be outdoors Now, listen to what Craig is thinking about doing. I brainstormed ideas for a service I could provide with a unique selling proposition that would allow me to be outdoors, be something I'm passionate about and competent in, and be just different enough from what's already out there. My brainstorming led me to my younger days of mowing my family's meticulous lawn. I was taught at an early age the skills of a master mower from my father. Fast forward to today. I thought about using my lawnmower expertise and coupling it with the current trend of environmentally conscious goods and services. My idea is for a lawn mowing service that uses only a real type lawn mower. Now that's R E E L. So get in your picture. Remember those old mowers where they had the reel that turned around and it slices the grass off so you don't have an engine? It's driven by just the power of pushing the mower forward. Okay, remember those? Yep, they're still, they're, they still are around. He says, uh, real mowers. Let's see, as opposed to a mower powered by a gas engine, the unique selling proposition is threefold. Number one, real mowers are green in that no fuel fuel is used. Two, real mowers are quiet since there's no engine noise. And three, real mowers provide a better cut as they slice the grass instead of ripping it. I've searched for lawn services that specifically use real mowers instead of engine-powered mowers but have found none, which is why I believe a niche market may exist. My question to you, Dan, is do you think this type of service offers enough of a unique selling proposition to differentiate it from the dozens of other lawn mowing services that are in my community? Craig, 
I believe that there's enough to distinguish you, and I believe that it's it's different enough that you can't survive making it a business. Wow, man, I wish I, I mean, I love your thinking and going down this path, but I really have a hard time seeing that as working. I mean, I, I could offer, I mean, I live in Williamson County, Tennessee, about 20 miles south of Nashville. So, you know, there are a lot of suburbs around here, and it's only three miles into where I have my lunch meetings every day, and, you know, only a little farther into the bank and the post office, places like that. So let's say that somebody is really environmentally conscious here and they say, Dan, I'm offering this service. So instead of jumping in your gas guzzling, you know, little Mercedes convertible and making your run in every day, I've got a horse and buggy. So we don't use any gas. We don't contribute to the pollution other than a few well, a little horse dookie along the way there. It'd be hard to overcome that. But certainly more environmentally conscious, you could make a case for that. Am I going to go for that service even if I'm really excited about being green and doing my part to make the world a better place? Not a chance in the world. The time is too important. And with what you're talking about, I mean, just just try to map it, work out a business plan. I mean, go to... My 48 Days blog, over on the right-hand side, you can download a free business plan. Map out your idea. See if you could make it work. But in the time that you, it would take you to mow a reasonably sized yard, that somebody else may charge $60 to mow, let's say, with the time it took for you to do that and cover the cost of your time, you may have to charge 120 I think that would be pretty reasonable that you would, in fact, have to charge twice as much. Can you make that work? Would customers pay twice as much for the benefits that you're describing, even if they are green conscious? I mean, I don't, come, hey, come here. Al Gore seems to be moving out of his house with his new divorce. Maybe he'll have a yard and he'd be a good candidate. See if he'll let you mow his yard using a real mower. I just, you know, sometimes ideas are really exciting, but I just don't think they really stand up as business ideas. And unfortunately, I have a hard time seeing how this could work. Convince me otherwise. Give me your success report. I love to be proven wrong on ideas like that. But as I think about it on the surface, I think it's a tough one. Danny says, Dan, I left a job for another job when I was offered it. I too quickly took the first thing I was offered. I believe I like job number one, computer programming, a little better. I know it was not what I wanted to do, though. Job number two, working in heating and air conditioning is okay. I know it's not what I want either. I work about 8 to 5 with an hour lunch. The hours are not bad. I work overtime sometimes. My question is this. I think I have a chance to find a job I like better. Job number three, restaurant store manager. The hours are not as good, though. I have to work 40 to 50 or 50 to 55 hours a week plus weekends and maybe some holidays. How much do hours come into play when you're doing something you enjoy? I would love the face-to-face contact with people. I do not want to pursue this new job if the hours don't end up working for me. I have a fiancé and no kids. Wow. Ah, the, boy, these are major moves. Computer programming and then going to work in heating and air conditioning, and now you want to be a restaurant manager? I mean, I'm not even seeing a common theme here. Um, I encourage you to certainly do something you enjoy, but don't make it like, don't don't go through this like you're a ball in a pinball machine. I mean, you need to have a little more theme here to what it is that you are pursuing because these are things that take a little time to build your reputation and credibility restaurant management is brutal on personal life and time balance 
I mean, nobody I know who's in restaurant management has a life outside of that. No, I think you're going to give up a lot unless you absolutely are passionate about the food industry. I would say don't pursue that. You're going to end up resenting it and moving on quickly. Here's an interesting one. Raymond says, uh, Dan, I recently purchased your book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, revised edition. That's the new one. It was just released in May, and I'm working through the book currently on day 13. Unfortunately, in my copy of your book, in the 48 days schedule, day 41 is missing. It's not printed at all. I'm sure there's something important for me to do on that day. I would greatly appreciate you sending me a copy of the activity reading for that day. Um, and so on. Well, guess what, Raymond? And I already emailed him back. <laughs> now, this, this is a brand new edition of 48 Days, revised edition. And the one thing I was really proud of in this is that I have a more complete 48-day schedule, an activity for every day leading up to 48. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, guess what? There is no 41. There's no 40, day 41. Not just in Raymond's book, but in anybody's book. I looked at our inventory in here, and I can't believe that. Now, the other thing I can't believe <clears throat> is how does this get past an editor? But again, it does. I mean, you have to... Now, I'm going to go into that. There's nothing for day 41. I apologize to people all over the world. I will have that up on our site uh, before the week is over so that the schedule on our site has day 41 activity in there. I don't know how that got past me. I was blown away when I read that. Okay, Barry, let me pick a couple more here. I'm running out of time. Barry says, thanks for the newsletter. Enjoy the ideas and alternative thinking. I've been kicking around an idea for a TV show that is clean, funny, fun to watch and partake in. It will be a win-win for all involved. I'm interested in using the idea for charity, fundraising, but not sure where to start. I'm from the UK, live in Nicaragua with my family where we're building a bilingual Christian school from scratch. Wow, you want to, so you want to do a TV show that's clean, funny, fun to watch, uh, and will raise money for charity. You know, TV is changing dramatically. I'm being approached every day by people in TV who are begging me to do anything on TV because the old days of getting ad revenue coming in are pretty well gone. I mean, you see major networks who on prime time Wednesday evening or Sunday morning are running wacko, goofy commercials, infomercials, because they're doing anything just to fill the time. My point is, to get a TV show that covers its own cost is extremely difficult, much less have one that throws off profits that you can fund some other kind of cause that you've got. Ah, Man, I I think you ought to look for other ways to do this. I mean, you can have an idea for a concept. You can do a a DVD. There's a lot of things you can do. But to actually have a TV show with the cost of production, cost of airtime, and have it cover itself, you're talking about then getting sponsors to buy ads in there. And that's a very difficult challenge and becoming increasingly more challenging. Let me end with this. I got a, got a couple here. I had several this week. In the newsletter, 48 Days newsletter this last week, and incidentally, I still have people who are surprised to know that I do a newsletter. I'm not quite sure how, but I know that there are a lot of things out there that we do, and maybe there's not as much crossover as sometimes I assume. But 
there are a whole lot of people that get the 48 Days newsletter. If you go to 48days.com, you'll see lots of opportunities there. Just put your email address in. Boom. Yeah, email addresses are challenging these days. A lot of uh, server sites block anything coming in that they recognize went out to a lot of people. So there's challenges, but we have a whole lot of people that uh, get my weekly newsletter. In that, as part of the podcast last week, I actually read this where somebody said, they quoted Frederick Douglass, who said, I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. I got multiple questions in that says, here's one from um, somebody in another country, what does it mean to pray with one's legs? And do give me scriptures to support your answers. Um, One that says, today I saw several references talking about praying with your legs. Um, I don't know what it means. Can we make a case for praying with your legs? Now, what that means, I hope that it's uh, pretty clear. It means instead of just staying on your knees and just praying and staying there and hoping God will, you know, find you a job, at some point you got to get up off your knees and go do something. Now, I'm a big proponent of uh, having people do something. I think faith is an action. It's not just a mindset. It's an action. You have to do something. Is there scriptural... A reference for this, yes, there is a whole lot. One of my favorites is in Exodus. Now, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, in the King James Version, this is what it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Now, here's what the deal. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt. So they got away from their oppressors, they're out in the desert, but they haven't yet gotten to the promised land, and they're saying, hey, this isn't what it's all, all what it's cracked up to be. This isn't what we thought it was going to be. They're sitting there moaning, they're saying, you know, God, save us from this. Here's what it says in the Living Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, quit praying and get the people moving. Forward march. (laughs) Now there's praying with your legs. God says, quit praying and start walking. Well, that's certainly what it's going to be mean to pray with your legs. Yes, pray, be clear about what it is that you want, but then get moving, make something happen. That's a topic for another day uh, where uh, how do we know God's will? How much do we do ourselves? How much do we wait? We hear the scripture out of Isaiah, they that wait upon the Lord. Well, make sure you understand the root word for that word wait is the same word from which we get waiter, which means somebody who's busy doing what they know needs to be done. So, hey, I hope you are doing that as well. This is Dan Meller, your host. Join us at 48days.net or check out some of the events coming up here at the sanctuary so we can meet in person. Have a wonderful week exploring not only work that you love, but the life that you love.